Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtog, but enough about me. My guest today is the best-selling instrumentalist of all time and arguably the most famous jazz musician alive. Both of these points elicit extremely strong emotions in people. To many, his music inspires peace, serenity, and relaxation. His 1994 Christmas album, Miracles, marks the start of the holiday season in my house. But to a vocal minority, his music inspires jokes and occasionally antipathy. Still, he's good-natured, confident, and wildly successful enough to be unperturbed by the ribbing. Besides, he's probably far too busy to care. Following the death of James Brown, the man born Kenneth Bruce Gorlick just might be the hardest working man in show business. He approaches his musical craft with the focus and clear-eyed determination of an athlete in training. He's been training for over half a century. He puts in three to four hours of practice each day to ensure that his playing remains up to his exceedingly high standards. His hard efforts have paid off on a new album entitled New Standards, a collection of original material designed to evoke the timeless spirit of jazz classics. He's also the subject of a new documentary by filmmaker Penny Lane called, appropriately enough, Listening to Kenny G. Premiering December 3rd on HBO, the film explores his artistic journey, superhuman work ethic, and his somewhat polarizing reputation as a musical figure. It also showcases his host of other non-musical talents, including baking, flying, and golf. And as you're about to find out, he's also really good at being interviewed. It's my pleasure to welcome Mr. Kenny G. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. And maybe throw on a Kenny G album in the background. Why not? 
I wanted to start with the upcoming HBO documentary, Listening to Kenny G. It's such a fascinating premise because it's not just a biography. It also documents your relationship with fans and with your critics. How did this begin for you? How did you first link up with, uh, with Penny Lane, who, in addition to being very talented, has an awesome name? She has an awesome name, definitely. Well, you know, I got the call from... Uh, who did I get the call from, actually? It was from my attorney who said he was talking to this guy, Bill Singer, at Ringer Films, that they may want to do some sort of an HBO doc on me. And so I just basically said, sure, I'm interested. And I got together with Penny, who was also contacted by them. And here's what happened. They contacted Penny and said, would you want to do a documentary on a musical person? And she came back and and had the idea to do it about me. So that's really where it came from. And what was the experience like for you making this film? I mean, I'm thinking back to the old This Is Your Life programs. I mean, did you learn anything about yourself in the process? Um, well, you know, no. I mean, I pretty much know everything that I, that I said about myself. But it was, um, it was fun. It was actually really fun. Penny made it easy. It was um, a lot of, um, you know, self-reflection. It was a lot of thoughtfulness, good questions. And also, I got a chance to see my old high school a band teacher, which was awesome because I hadn't seen him in 20 plus years. Oh, that's incredible. I, there's a, a very moving part of the film when I, and uh, he was saying that you found your soul when you uh, played a, a, I think it was a <laughs> 10 minute note on stage. I mean, do you have, is that a, a real uh, crucial turning point in, uh, in your life? Do you remember that moment very well? Well, I think he remembers it more than I remember that particular moment. I think I was just playing my heart out and doing my thing. And I think maybe for him, he might've looked at me you know, a teacher might look at a student one day and go, you know, he's not really a student anymore. <laughs> um, you know, and maybe that was his moment like that. But for me, it was just um, a great camaraderie with him. And he was super encouraging. So it, it, he was a big part of me continuing to play because um, he always made me feel like I was a pro. Oh, well, I mean, that's... When you're first starting out on any instrument, I mean, I, I, you need to feel like you're actually going somewhere. And that's a crucial thing, I think, teachers, to give them a sense of, of confidence that, you know, you're getting somewhere. That's a, a beautiful gift. I agree. I agree. And then he did, he gave that to me and, and I just kept, I took it and ran. <laughs> Is it true you still use the same, uh, same saxophone? Yeah. Yeah. Same one. Same exact one. Yeah. I mean, this is my, you know, my Indiana Jones brain is kicking in. I mean, I feel like that belongs in a museum. I mean, do you have it in a vault? Like, wow, that's unbelievable. That That's still, I mean, aside from Paul McCartney's Hofner, I can't think of a more, you know, iconic instrument that's linked to somebody. Wow. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's it's, it's the same one I use all, all um, every gig I play, everything I record, all with the same sax. Wow, that is incredible. Yeah, cool. Oh, man. I mean, I, I, I love, I mean, the film shows off your, your, your sense of humor, and I, I really love and admire the way that, that you handle your critics because it doesn't impact your love of playing one iota. And I just think that is the coolest thing. There was a, an interview you gave recently, I think it was with the Daily Beast, where you're actually complimenting the writing of a, of a, of a critical review, which I just think is, some, is like Buddha-level equanimity and, and compassion there. And I, I just think it's so important to put this out there because, you know, there are so many people who talk themselves out of doing, pursuing any creative avenue for fear of, you know, critics, what people might say, whatever. And I, I just think, you know, it's so important for someone like you to, to I just want to know, how, where, how did you achieve that level of, of 
composure and self self assurance. I just think that's that's like more people should see that and just you know do their thing. Well, thank you. You know, I I do believe that's a really good message because you're right. A lot of people stop the whole process because either because they are criticized or they're fear of being criticized. And it stops a lot of really great ideas from getting farther along. Great ideas, great music, whatever you want to say. But, um, you know, I've always had the feeling inside of me that when I play my sax, I just know what I want it to sound like. And if I accomplish that, whatever anybody says really doesn't mean anything to me. Because fortunately for me, when I've done that, I've gotten, I've gotten a lot of feedback positive around the world by millions and millions of people. So when when that happens, that's a really good that's a real that's really good feedback for trusting yourself. I mean, yeah. look, if I did that and everybody hated everything I did, it would be a lot harder maybe to have that confidence that I still want to do what I'm doing. But I probably would still have it because when I I'm in my studio right now and when I come out of the studio with some piece of music recorded that I think is good, that's that's it, man. That's just it goes out there, and whatever happens, I still love it. I'm so. Whenever I talk to people who are, are blessed with the ability to to write music, I'm so curious of what compels them to do it. I, is it a, a desire to connect with other people, or is it to just get something out of yourself? If you were on a desert island, would you you know be playing just as much? I would be playing just as much. Yeah, for me, it comes from inside. Yeah. Um, what is the desire to write a piece of music? It's really um, one of those things. It's uh, it's almost like um, it's like, almost like if you were like if you opened a box and then you you go okay, well I wonder what's inside. You're just kind of curious. So that's kind of what it is. I'm curious. How I hear a couple of notes and I go, well, I'm really curious about these notes. Can these notes turn into a beautiful melody the way that I think they can? And so for me, it's all about the discovery and the challenge of trying to make it work. And the mystery of whether it will work or not. And then when it, when it, when you play it back, when I play it back and I listen, I'm almost like a third person listening and going, that's a really beautiful piece of music without it being me stroking my own ego. And, and that's something that I think uh, maybe me, I, it may be unique, but that's, that's how I do it. I'm really able to separate myself from myself when I listen back. Yeah, I wanted to ask you more about your your composition progress uh, process. Uh, New standards is is originals. Do you do you hear the tune in your head and put it down, or do you solo and maybe pick a phrase or two that you think, oh, that's really beautiful. I'm going to develop that a little more, or is it a combination? Uh, it's a lot of factors. It's not it's not any one thing. Sometimes I have a melody that's just I've got it in my head and I know it's going to be right, and then I just need to find the chords that go along with that melody. Sometimes I'm just playing with a, a keyboard player and we're just noodling and then he plays a chord and I go, ooh, play that chord again. And then I stop, oh, I'm okay, from there. And then we just start from there. And it's a lot of ways. It could be just, could just be humming something and I just hear something. Uh, could be, could just be some music that I hear that go, oh, I'd like to play something like that. I hear a certain chord changes. I'm going to come up with something that goes along with something like that. And so there's, I wish there was only one way and I wish I could just bottle it and then it would be a lot easier. <laughs> I mean, this is, this is a question that's going to give away the fact that I, as much as I love music and my job allows me to speak to fantastically talented people like you who can write. I've never written a song in my life. I play a number of instruments. I, 
I, I can't, I can't do it. I don't know if it's in my head or just some. I guess the question is, is being a, a, a musician, a, a, or a composer, I should say, is that something that you're born with or can you learn to do it? Oh, I think you can absolutely learn to do it. Yeah. I think it's pretty easy. But here's how, here's how I would advise anybody that's, that has trouble doing it or just doesn't understand the process. Okay. If you, if some of us are born with, with that, those melodies inside of us, some of us are. But if you're not, it's really easy. Find songs that you like. Figure out how they were composed. Like find, get the chord changes, play them. And then just kind of get used to that and then say, okay, I want to write something like that. So change the chords, change everything, but try to find some similarities where it's not too similar because you obviously don't want to have any copyright infringement. But that's how you do it. You kind of emulate and then you'll find your own voice because you may go, wow, I really like this, but I wish it would go here. And then you find that you're creating a brand new song. Was there a turning point for you when, when you went from being somebody who was, I, I'll use the phrase, an apprentice musician to really knowing that you discovered your own voice and your own sound? I think it was probably when I did my album Duotones in 86 was when what happened was, okay, it's 86 is like 35 years ago. They, the technology just came out with what we would call a synthesizer. Now it's just like, whatever. That's like old school. Like now we're talking about all these, you know, um, you know computer-based things and you can trigger sounds with your, you know, the keys on your laptop. But we're just talking about like a, a piano looking device that had sounds in it. It wasn't a piano. It was a synthesizer, electronic. You could play something on it and then hit a button and it would play back what you played. That's pretty. That was that was innovative back then. It's not innovative now. Now it's now that's that's like like kindergarten stuff. But um, <laughs> back then, so what happened was that I got my hands on one of these things, and since I'm not a piano player, I can noodle. So then I started noodling, and then you can fix notes. So I would fix. I go, hey, I just created a piano track that I've always wanted to play on, that I could never explain to somebody and it wouldn't it didn't sound right on a piano but it sounded right on the synthesizer uh a sequencer that's the that's what i'm a sequencer so i played this thing and then i hit my button and it's like whoa i really like this back backing track that i just made and i make a melody to it and that's when i found my voice Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? 
it's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the film, they, uh, there's a lot of attention paid to your, your practice regimen, which is formidable. Uh, three hours a day for approximately 50 years? Something like that? Yeah, about, yeah. I mean, by Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hours rule, you're a master five times over. And as a layperson, I would imagine that, that, that there must be very little for you left to learn. I mean, you're Kenny G. Why do you practice? Is it to keep limber or are you still discovering and finding new things? Well, the analogy I would use would be somebody like, um, you know, like a great golfer. Let's say, let's take Tiger Woods. So why would Tiger Woods ever have to go to the driving range? Doesn't he have it? <laughs> I mean, doesn't he have it? Good point. You know, why would anybody go practice? Because practice is what maintains your skill level at something that you may be, let's say you are a master at it. Although I'm not saying I'm a master at the sax. I'm trying to master the sax. And I would say that anybody that's playing an instrument or golf or any of those things, we all say our goal is to keep trying to master something that can never be mastered. So it's just the, it's the quest to keep learning. I mean, I practiced this morning. I did my three hours already. And, you know, I was working on trying to use my phrasing in a different way than, I, than I've done in the past and challenging because I'm so used to doing things a certain way. So I thought, let me try to do things a different way here. And so I'm, I'm working on that. I figured, you know, maybe a couple more years of doing that and I'll probably be pretty good at that particular little thing. And then I'll be another couple of years for something else. And then I'll be in my 90s and I'll just keep doing the same thing. <laughs> I mean, that is an inspiration. I mean, you, you really are. I mean, and, and it, they go, you go through this in, in the film as well. I mean, you, you're a pilot, you're a golfer, you're a baker. I mean, there are all, all these things that, that you do that you, you commit a thousand percent to, which is really, you know, the way you should do anything. Uh, is there anything that, that you're sort of at the beginning of your journey on, uh, uh, hobbies-wise or, you know, interest-wise, that you just started to, to learn that you're first now getting into? Yeah, I'm, tr I'm trying to learn how to speak French. Really? 
I already know how that's going to be. I already know how much that's going to take. And I am not putting in the right kind of time. I just don't have it. So I'm trying to figure out how I might be able to sneak in the right amount of time. Uh, and I just don't know how to do that yet because my life is pretty full. I mean, I, I, I do my practicing. I got my exercising I like to do. I still have to maintain my skill level as a pilot. Obviously, we want that because that's, yeah. your life depends on Crucial. that. I love golf, so I, I, I want to dedicate some time to golf. I have a family. you know. I have people in my life that I want to spend time with. And there's also, I'd like to do things like nothing, <laughs> like sit around and just contemplate things and spend time just being instead of doing. So I have all those things, but I still want to speak French. So I'm trying to figure out how to make that happen. I'm not sure if it's going to happen. And I may be one of the things that I might have to just go, I'm going to be satisfied with a less than stellar skill level at that. But maybe if I have a, just a working French vocabulary and dialogue, maybe I'll be happy with it. I'm not sure I will be because I'm not wired to be happy with anything that's not really great. <laughs> I mean, judging from your track record, I have a funny feeling you'll be fluent very, very shortly. What's that great, uh, you know, the painter Bob Ross, the you know the guy on PBS, and he would all, he'd, he'd always say, you know, I, I hope you're plagued with dissatisfaction because that'll keep you coming back and keep you, you know, w- wanting to keep on painting another and another. And I, I you know, it seems, sounds counterintuitive. It almost sounds negative when you hear it, but I think of that a lot. And, you know, hearing what you just said, it makes me think of, uh, of you being plagued with dissatisfaction, but in a good way to keep moving forward. Yeah, it's almost like that movie, um, uh, Whiplash. I don't know if you saw the movie Whiplash. So the, yes. By the way, I never had a teacher like that. Not like that. He was awful. But he, he, his whole thing was he never wanted to tell somebody good job. I remember him saying because he thought those were the worst two words you could ever tell somebody good job because he felt like if you did that, then it would stop them from trying harder to get better. I completely don't agree with that. I do not agree with it. I think you can say good job, and still, if a person is really interested in becoming better and better just because somebody's, I mean, I hear it all the time, how, hey, that was a great show. Well, in my mind, I know that I missed a note that I wanted to hit the way I wanted to hit it or blah, blah, blah. But I don't mind hearing good job. I, I appreciate that. And that doesn't take any motivation away from me to try harder to be better the next, the next night at my next gig, no matter, even if I'm think, even if I think, hey, that was a really good gig. Great. But I'm still motivated to do even better tomorrow. It's, it, I, so I disagree with that, but I get the, the philosophy of being dissatisfied <laughs> does get you always trying to be better, but hopefully you're not beating yourself up during the process. Right. That's a, a delicate balance. I mean, speaking of moving forward, your, your new album, tell me a little bit about the, 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 the theme behind it. It sounds like you, uh, it's steeped in you know, old masters like Coltrane and Miles Davis. Like, tell me a little more about the, uh, the, the thinking behind the record. Well, I love the ballads of those uh, of the era of those those jazz greats. So this we're talking about the fifties and sixties. So you've got your Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Those are pretty household names. I think even people that aren't into jazz kind of know those names. But there's Stan Getz and there's Paul Desmond and there's Cannonball Adderley and Sonny Rollins. Those names are probably not so upfront with people. But I love all those ballads. And the thing I love about those ballads is that they're not. Uh, they're not simple. They're complicated. And I say complicated in the sense that the composition are chords, like they're complicated jazz chords. Yeah. And, and it gives the player a chance to nuance through the solo section of a song and really kind of find a way to 
bring all those complicated chords together. Um, and so I wanted to do that, but I also wanted the melodies to be my melodies. So I didn't want to just go ahead and play the old standards. So I wanted to write new songs in that style, but make them the melodies that that sing sing to my heart. And uh, that's what I did. So that's why it's called new standards because they're not the old standards. They're new, brand new songs. And I'm hoping that they would be considered standards at some point because of the way that they're constructed. I mean, that's what I love about those those tracks. I mean, they are they're complicated when you sit down to try and play them, but they they don't sound that way. They they cover their tracks, they cover the 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 joins, and make it seem so seamless and make it seem so easy. What what is for you? I mean, the title is so great because to me, the thing that makes a standard really is just the passage of time. Uh, And so the 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 idea of a new standard is is it's like jumbo shrimp. It's almost it's almost counterintuitive. What is it to you that that makes? And maybe this is a you know a eye of the beholder type question. What is it that makes a, a timeless melody? to you? Well, that's a good question. And that's what I try to do with every song that I record. Um, it's, it's a melody that makes sense and is played, mm. in an, in played in just the right way that the emotion of the melody there, uh, it's, not a, it's not like a one-time take. See, that's, what I, that's why I love doing it in my studio because I have a chance to tweak things. Because you're talking about a timeless melody. You're not talking about Hey, on Tuesday night, I had, that was a good take. Okay, that was a good take on Tuesday night, but, but is that the take that's going to be around for 50 years? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but in a perfect world, I think even the jazz greats, uh, now this is very presumptuous, but even some of the beautiful ballads of the 50s and 60s, if the jazz greats had the technology that we have today and they had the, the knowledge of how to do it, which is what I, do, I have in my studio, I know how to use all this gear. So I can take a melody and go, you know, I love it, but there's three notes I don't like. I can fix those three notes and make them exactly the way I want. They'll fit in seamlessly. Would the jazz greats go back and tweak some of their performances just because they had the chance to? I would say that maybe some of them would, maybe some of them wouldn't. But for me, it's it's about putting out a masterpiece that I can listen to forever and know that there's, it's just, I don't know how to say it in words. It's like, I like my Christmas album. You know, that's how I set about to do Miracles and it was 1994. And so we're going to do a, an arrangement of White Christmas. It's been done a million times. Okay, how, why is my arrangement going to be something that's going to stand the test of time? Because it's going to be a classic arrangement. It's not going to have any funny business in it in the sense that it's going to be so nuanced that it would only be only be applicable for the 90s. No, this is going to be something that you could listen to if you were in the 1800s or now in 2030, okay, what's that melody? So I got to play it in just the right way, right nuances. And that's kind of what I did with New Standards. Same, same, same uh, intention. It's really fascinating how in the last 180 years or so, the meaning of a song went from being a set of notes and chords that was sort of living and evolving depending on who was playing it to the record is the song. I mean, you know, I mean, this is a silly example, but something like Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner, when they say, turn it up at the beginning, they have to say that in concert now because for most listeners, that's become part of the song. The accidents are part of the song. Every little, you know, note bend in the solo, it's become about that recording and not sort of a song as a living, breathing standard, I guess, is, is probably the term. It's interesting to see that evolution over the uh, 
over the century or 20th century, I suppose. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a delicate balance when you play live because you, don't, you do want to emulate what you've recorded because people are used to it, but then hopefully you give it something special in the live performance. So we do our best. I mean, I don't play every single note exactly the same as I did on the recording during a live performance. I get close enough, but then when I'm playing live, there's the nuances that just make it special for that, for that Tuesday night. <laughs> for the recording, I'll leave it right where it is. Live performance, I'm probably going to throw in some, a few more fancier things that would be exciting for that moment, but maybe not something I want to hear every single time I hear the song. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways I imagine you haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Margaret Atwood, Questlove, Kate Blanchett, and Oscar Isaac. If that sounds like a varied group of people, it's because it is. I always wanted to make a show where one week we could sit with a politician like Beto or Wark, the next an author like Min Jin Lee, or TV titans like Bill Hader and Quinta Brunson. Basically, this is a podcast driven by curiosity and an abundance of research. Conversations where people actually start to sound like people. In recent weeks, I sat with Dan Levy, Ava DuVernay, Benny Safdie, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there. I wanted to ask you about your your virtual duet, I guess is probably the best way to phrase it, with uh, Stan Getz. How did that come to be? 
what was the process of doing that? Because this wasn't like Natalie Cole singing with, with her father on Unforgettable. This was something totally new that I've really never heard of being done. Can you tell me more about it? Yeah, it's, it's actually more like a posthumous duet than a, than a virtual because, you know, Stan's not around anymore. And it's, um, in a way, it's, it's, I think, I don't know. I don't know if anyone's ever done this before. And I didn't even know anybody, I didn't know it could be done. I decided I wanted to write a song and I wanted Stan Getz to play my melody. Of course, of course, he never would have ever played it because it didn't exist while he was alive. So how am I going to get Stan Getz to play my melody? Well, I'm going to have to use our fabulous technology that we have in 2021 and I'm going to have to grab notes and I'm going to have to take those notes that he plays with his sound and I'm going to have to change the notes. I'm going to have to change the notes and change the phrasing and put notes together that were never put together and make him basically play a melody that he's never played. And is it going to sound good or is it going to sound like a robotic choppy thing? And it turned out that it worked out really, really well. And I'm super proud of it. And I think that it's, I think it's innovative. I think it's, his family loves it. I played it for the Getz family. They love it. I, they all signed off on this literally and figuratively that they love this thing. All the money that will be generated from this song is going to the Stan Getz estate. So I would never profit from any of this, but I just think it's... And also it's nice for me to be able to share my fan base with somebody's uh, estate that a lot of people don't know Stan Getz, yeah. but hopefully they will and they'll like it enough and and maybe they'll go and support uh, the whole thing by buying some of Stan Getz's records, which would be great. So it's kind of cool. It's a, it's innovative. I'm sure the jazz critics are going to absolutely hate it. I'm sure they will because it's uh, it's very presumptuous of me to take Stan Getz and basically bring him into my world. And they're going to think that that was probably very, very uncool. And I think it's just the opposite of that. I'm sure if you could go to his world, you would. But I, I think it's so innovative and so interesting. And as you said, I hadn't even thought of that, about, about you know, turning people who are maybe dipping their toe into jazz but don't really know where to start to, to turn them on to, to some great names like that. Who are some other people that you would recommend that maybe, you know, want to get into jazz but don't really know where to start? Who, who should they check out? Well, Stan Gates, for, for, for sure. There's a, there's a record called Gets for Lovers. You get that hmm. book, that's, that record, Gets for Lovers, and even if you're not a Stan Getz fan or you don't know much about it, if you like a beautiful saxophone, because he, he had a sound that was different than anybody other anybody else's sax sound, his nickname was The Sound, you know? <laughs> and there's a quote from John Coltrane that says something like, about Stan Getz, he says something like, "If we, uh, we'd all play like that if we could. That's John Coltrane talking about Stan <laughs> Getz. So Stan is just beautiful in his... Uh, and it's just his phrasing and everything. It's just a, a unique sound. He's great. Paul Desmond is great. He's got a beautiful light touch. Um, Cannonball Adderley is one of my favorite. He can get busy. He's probably my favorite alto sax player, but uh, he plays a, a, a bossa nova called Quiet Nights that I think is just one of the greatest, greatest performances I've ever heard. It's complicated and fast, but you don't feel it. You just feel it being awesome. And uh, so... Yeah, there's a good start right there. Those three would be great. Dexter Gordon has some beautiful jazz ballads out there. Um, you can also just listen to some piano jazz from Bill Evans. He's great. Mm -hmm. So that would be a good start. I love the stuff Getz did with uh, Gilberto. Just, oh, like, oh, man. Yeah, because 
Getz was the one that made the Bossa Nova world famous. I mean, he brought Bossa Nova to the world stage. What happened was that uh, for, uh, I was talking to Stan's widow, Monica, and she was telling me how it all happened, that, that the government, the U.S. government, had brought these Brazilian musicians into the United States to, I don't know, it's like a, some sort of a, I don't know, a sharing program. It had nothing to do with Stan Getz. It just brought him in. And then I guess his wife, Monica, heard this and said, you know, you should do something with these Brazilian players. And I guess they got together and Stan wasn't all that, that uh, excited about it. She convinced him that this was good to do. And she spearheaded the whole record that won record of the year and song of the year in 1964 at the Grammys. And I understand that Stan's contemporaries, people like Miles, uh, I'm not sure if it was actually Miles, but people like that, the contemporaries, were giving Stan a, ba- a really bad time about doing these bossa novas, like, ah, oh, you've gone commercial, you've turned your back on jazz. Jeez, some of the things that I hear <laughs> today about my music, so that's why it doesn't bother me anyway. But um, so Stan did not go to the Grammys to accept the Grammy, and his wife accept- accepted it on his behalf. And it was his most famous record. It really spearheaded his career into a new stratosphere. And it was all because his wife really saw the vision and said, you know, no, this is really going to be okay. And she convinced him to do it. And, and again, he was fighting the jazz purists that were saying this really isn't a good thing to do. And obviously, in hindsight, as we look back, some of those ballads, uh, jazz ballads, I mean, the bossa novas that Stan gets did, they're some of the most beloved jazz songs. And now I think all, there's not one jazz purist that probably would criticize that. So there you go. Oh my God, I didn't know that. That's an incredible story for, an incredible, for anyone who hasn't heard that, please check that record out. It, it is unbelievable. I mean, Stan Getz, he's the sound. Brings me to a question about your sound. I mean, I've been heard your sound referred to as so many things, R&B, adult contemporary, the famous smooth jazz tag, which seems like if it was invented for you, if not for Grover Washington Jr. How do you categorize your sound? What do you call it? Or do you not even think in those terms? Yeah. No, no, no. There, I don't categorize it at all. I mean, it's. I'm lucky that, um, you know, and people say this to me. You know, I just hear a few notes and they know it's my saxophone sound. I mean, that's that's mm-hmm. a that's a blessing. That's a gift. That's um, a phenomenon. I don't know. You know, it just is. It's one of those things. Whatever happens when I put that sax in my mouth, however, however the air flows out of my body, however my mouth is on there. There's a sound that comes out of my sax that sounds different, and that's that's it. That's the sound. I mean, it's one of the most identifiable sounds in music. I mean, you've been successful in pretty much every metric a musician could be successful, which is astonishing because, I mean, jazz isn't traditionally seen as a mainstream genre. I mean, I, I wish it was, but I feel like that's, it's, that's probably the case. It's not, I feel like your career couldn't be something that could be cooked up in, you know, with, with a bunch of industry suits. Like, it's just so, it's just such a naturally occurring phenomenon. What is it about your music that, that resonates with people across the globe? Well, that's, that's, a, <laughs> I, how would I answer that question? <laughs> that's Fair. a good question. But I mean, you know, it's, uh, when you, when people watch the documentary, you'll see how all this kind of happened with, with a, a very uh, important performance on the Johnny Carson show in the mid-80s, where people heard my so- sound for the first time on a, let's say, on a national level. Uh, and so that was a big deal back then. 
you know, wh- how, why does my music resonate with people? I don't know. I just, wh- it, it's, it's one of those things. It's like, why do you fall in love with somebody? Why does mm. one person think that somebody's beautiful and somebody else looks think that somebody else is beautiful? It's just one of those things. It's a heart touches a heart in a certain way. And I'm very lucky that what comes out of my heart, which is sincere and organic and natural and beloved to me, seems to touch other people's hearts in that same way. And it's one of those beautiful things that, that makes life really exciting because it's, it's an unknown that can't be quantified. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Kenny, I would, I would talk to you all day. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but it has been an absolute joy speaking to you. Thank you so much for your time today. And more importantly, thank you for your, your music. It has been really such a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. I appreciate everything. Thanks for the kind words at the beginning. Oh my goodness, of course. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio, a production of iHeartRadio. For more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and in the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.